This is Diving Board, a show about artists, the art they make, and a wide range of social and cultural issues. I'm Bill Valerio, and I run the Woodmere Art Museum, where we tell the stories of Philadelphia's art and artists. And I'm Stephanie Marutis of Cuvenda Media, where we produce narratives for social change. On today's show, we're hopping in my car with Jerry Pinckney to take a tour of Philadelphia's Germantown neighborhood. Jerry is a masterful watercolorist and renowned illustrator, and the focus of our Freedom's Journal exhibition at Woodmere. We're showcasing more than 100 of his works, including many images that confront the painful history of slavery and raise questions about the meaning of freedom. What I've now making a kind of connection between my sense of hunger and thirst for history, understanding history, did that stem from growing up in a very historic area and not knowing it? and all of a sudden becoming aware of it, and so that it, it even actually grew in importance? Or is it the fact that, in some sense, an African-American looking at history, feeling that you weren't a part of history other than slavery, finding out that you actually grew up in a neighborhood that spoke to American history? As part of our tour with Jerry, we're going to hear about how he grew up and the influences that have shaped him as an artist. We'll hear about how his life revolved around Easter Oldham Street and how it fed his imagination. He'll also talk about what his parents were like, what kind of education he had, and who were the mentors in his life who made a big difference. You know, I think that art is created out of this full range of experiences as well as the lack of experiences. In other words, you create your own. You use your imagination to explore or, or to see the world. And so we took, you know, whether we saw it on television or whether we experienced it in the movies, fly fishing or uh, archery, we brought it home to Rolling Street and then we had to find a way to create that space for ourselves. But before we do hop in Bill's car, we do want you to know about several other podcast episodes we've released around the Freedom's Journal exhibition. You won't want to miss the amazing conversation between Jerry Pinckney and Crystal Lucky, a professor of African American literature at Villanova University. They dive into what it might have felt like to be an enslaved African brought over in the middle passage, how to talk with children about this hard history, and find solace in what Jerry calls the Ark of Promise to overcome this painful history. And in an effort to comprehend the brutal history of slavery and think about issues around freedom today, we've created a unique storytelling experience around Jerry Pinckney's illustrations in The Old African and Minty, the story of young Harriet Tubman. We teamed up with our constant partner, Warren Ori, to compose original music inspired by these two great stories, which could then be used to accompany dramatic readings performed by Suzanne Burgess and himself. We've also made their performances of The Old African and Minty available in podcast form so you can hear these stories in their entirety along with our episode featuring Warren and Suzanne talking about what these stories mean to them and how they view 
their performances as a springboard for broader conversations around slavery and freedom. Jerry Pinckney left Philadelphia in his 20s, and he spent many years living north of New York City in a village along the Hudson River. He and his wife, Gloria Jean Pinckney, also a writer, came down to Woodmere for a day of interviews with us. That afternoon, we hopped in Bill's car with Jerry and Gloria, and we found out that they met at a Valentine's Day dance in Philadelphia at Dobbins Vocational Technical School. And throughout his career, Gloria has been one of Jerry's closest advisors. She's identified models for him from their church. She's outfitted them for his illustrations. She's done research. And they've also collaborated with her writing and his illustrations. You want to go back to the street where I grew up? Yeah. That's East Earlham Street. All of my neighbors and homeowners had migrated from the south. It was an all-black block, which we'll see. And then surrounded was a Jewish and Italian communities. And we got along fine, by the way, but there was no socialization at all. But my view of Germantown was a very limited. We had our own universe. And in that time, you had to cross other neighborhoods to get to a swimming pool or something like that. So we didn't venture out. Our, again, universe was Earlham Street. So my experience with Germantown is still limited, as was my experiences to Philadelphia. Um, I went to an all-black elementary school. Out in that uh, was in Germantown Hill School, but that was, I think, that was also a matter of choice that my parents felt that in many ways we were going to get the best education. And then my two younger sisters went to a black and white um, integrated school. But my parents, for myself and two older brothers and older sister, felt in some way that school was right. And it did, I think, a certain amount of self esteem was garnered there because you had black teachers teaching. So we were introduced to professional people at that point. I don't think we knew about it and was aware of it until we became adults, but we were surrounded by professional African-Americans. My grandfather lived on the same block and when my siblings, the older siblings, got married, they lived close by within that area, usually walking distance. My mother was a day worker, and it's kind of interesting to spotlight her because doing day work was a very honorable work. My mother was a very stylish woman, and she carried that sense of self-pride. And actually, I should say this is true of my father as well. He, Both of them. He worked um, in produce for a grocery store. I remember visiting him at, while he was at work, and he was you could see he had the, the pride in his job. So in a sense, maybe I've sort of gotten that from them. But they were both very independent and creative people and in bringing a sense of dignity to their lives. Um, they kind of understood and a lot of the Southerners did, by the way, their position in life, but found creative ways to uh, circumvent and to thrive. And my father, I remember, um, always wanted to work for himself. So he once had a card. It was James H. Pinkney, interior and exterior painter, house painter. 
And what I remembered about him is that whatever he decided to do, he would figure it out. And he became really um, the kind of um, person you would call on if you had a plumbing problem or electrical problem. James would be able to either fix or paint or repair almost anything. And he learned by actually physically repairing things, and that was his process. And actually, my father had an opportunity to work as a janitor. He turned it down to go on his own and do his own thing. And how, as a, even as a young boy growing up, I thought, I mean, how could he not take that job when security about a paycheck would have been helpful to the family? But my father, he was an independent spirit, and he needed to try something on his own. He wanted to be responsible for himself and his family and figure out a way to do this, that. But even as a kid, I realized that had value, that job had value, but it also realized the independent spirit of my father, which I, as an adult, I really kind of now look back and think that's pretty terrific. My art education sort of started when I entered high school and really in full bloom when I entered art school. But in a sense, my art education really started in my father's basement workshop because he loved paint. That time you mixed paint. You went in, you got a gallon of white paint or whatnot, and then you decided what color you wanted, and then you bought tints. That he loved. He loved that. Who in the family might have sort of the encouragement or just the ability it, to be artistic around it, when that was? It, it came from my father and the, the reverence for tools and the appreciation for tools and materials came from really my father. He also loved to refinish furniture and bring old furniture back to life. And he had his own tricks that he would. So he was always using his imagination to, you know, even though they. Uh, on one level, they were repairs and things that to everyday kind of objects. But to him, it was an important way to express his, again, reference for tools, but and the use of making something using your hands. You know, it's been interesting as we've been doing this podcast and the artists that we do get to talk to so much, right, goes back to being five, four. You oh, know, yeah. you just trace back. It's unbelievable. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. just those inspirations are starting really young. No, I could probably pick up any uh, of my works today and draw a line directly to something that happened earlier in my life that in some way you don't know it at the time or I didn't know it at the time, it gave birth to something that I'm now employing. Yeah, as you started to make art, you know, I guess in your school, like elementary school years, you said it kind of came up later, but when did you remember making art and when did maybe the adults in your life start to see that you were making art? Well, there was something very interesting. When I talked to my older brother, all the boys were encouraged to draw. And certainly the tool of choice was the pencil because my grandfather worked in a pencil factory. My older brother, Billy, talked about meeting uh, the boys his age in basements and drawing still lives. That didn't happen to me, but except that we were always had materials available for us to make things. Whatever we had to buy, Germantown became the main route to getting places so it was the main corridor which I walked back and forth or I rode the number 23 trolley 
And it's also Germantown Avenue was also where you found George Washington's residency as president for a short period of time. It was also the way I got to school. That would be the route I would take to get my hair cut, be the route to see other girlfriends. What have a girlfriend? <laughs> that lived beyond, <laughs> that lived in Germantown. Um, so it, you know, and that's where oh, yeah, we that did all of our, all of our shop, shopping. And yeah, and it was where we, in a sense, when we were kids growing up and wanted to earn extra money, we would make our own shoe boxes and it would be Germantown Avenue that we would, you know, head off to to shine shoes at 15 cents a shoe shine. So Germantown Avenue was critically important to how we survived in terms of meeting our needs that we had to, where we had to buy or get services. It's interesting to be kind of a little bit disoriented because so much has changed. So Earlham Street is behind this church, St. Luke's. Down behind this church is a burial ground, a cemetery. Um, that cemetery blocked off, as you'll see, Earlham Street. And the story is that the reason why there were all the homeowners on that block were African-Americans who migrated from the South was the fact that no white person wanted to live behind a cemetery. And so this was accessible and affordable. So here's the, um, yeah, here's the cemetery. Well, we used to climb that wall, and you can imagine as young boys, uh, a cemetery at night and especially an old cemetery at night, you know, it was scary, you know, and we wanted to be scared. Um, so that would be a place there. That would be. I don't remember any destruction other than the crypt. Sometimes you'd try to lift up the you know, top and then everybody would run, you know, and scream and run. Uh, as you can see, this area is it's in deep decline. What do you remember how these houses looked when you were growing well, up? Well, these houses were, you know, this was where we on Earlham Street wanted to live, out of Earlham Street. This would be the area that we couldn't afford, my parents couldn't afford. So right here is Earlham Street. This cinder block building here would have been the factory, the pencil factory where my grandfather worked. Um, so he really worked close to home. Okay. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now you can see it, it's a small block. The yellow house with the red trim is 51 Earlham Street. Yeah, you can. Yeah. Wow, and the church really is the focal point of the block. Yes. You're living between a factory and a church. Uh, yeah. Jerry, so, weren't there more houses here? This was all homes. Some are not going to be knocked down. Um, and then here... I don't think this was the last house either. Yes, I mean, uh, that was the, the last... Wasn't there? No, there was that the three houses, and then that okay. was the alley. Uh, what was your so address? Uh, 51, it's the it's next one. Yeah, oh, okay. this is 51, as Miss Sadie's house. Um, oh, right here with the big ginkgo tree in this front is of it. Your right, house, this right? is my house here. Wow. Right, exactly. Jerry, so there was a... Uh, it's, it had uh, six rooms, a bath without a sink. So the first floor was a so living room, a dining room, and then a kitchen, and in the back they had a shed. And my father eventually tore down the separation between a living room and dining room and made it, there must be another word than large room, because the house was very small, as you can see. There were eight of us who lived in that house. And then in the second floor, there were three bedrooms and that small bath without a sink. But now, dear, 
Wasn't there a house there? Yeah, there were, this was all, and these were all home. homes. Um, so, yeah, exactly. So we were all, of course, all attached homes. two houses between these two. Yeah, right, exactly. There was two. My father sold this house, and I'm going to say in the 70s, um, 70s for, for $1,800. And what I remember was that he had a lien of $1,600 on it. And I found a lawyer, and we paid off the lien. I never told him about that, um, so he was free to be able to sell the house. But he sold it for eighteen hundred dollars in the seventies. So, this is really powerful. And, how, uh, and when did they buy it? You think what, the forties? I always remember. Yeah, I was born in nineteen thirty-nine, and um, and so the, you know, we the house was in the family certainly then. Didn't your grandfather have a house? That, last, that house. last house, right there, the white one. You know, they raised chickens in the, their backyard. Uh, mainly for the eggs. What a colorful block. Were the houses all these different colors, too? It was always a unique kind of block, and, and I think, if I remember correctly, and we everybody took care of their homes. You do remember um, correctly. It was, yeah. it was still a neat block. It was a neat block, and I think people treasured and understood um, the value of being able to own a house, especially if you didn't have that opportunity, and then you now all of a sudden was there. So the areas around, again, was predominantly white. There were some eventually black families did move in, but that was sort of spotty. And this really was our, uh, I said, our universe. We created all of our own games. In terms of sports, we would set up my father's uh, sawhorses, and they became hurdles. And I remember we all loved archery. And so at the end of the block, we would get bows and arrows and set up a target at the end of the block here, and we would have target practice. So we always had a way to imagine ourselves out of the block. I mean, fly fishing, we all had poles for fly fishing and with the weights and, and the hooks that you would fly fish, and it simply was a matter of taking an old tire, and that became the target in a sense. That house, we're right across from my grandfather's house, which was the first house to be torn down. So we built a clubhouse. And we built the clubhouse out of slats of old wood, the wood that fences that were being falling down. And we found an abandoned car, which you took the glass out. And so this clubhouse had two floors to it and windows, actually car window glass windows. The floor was brick. There was what it was down the corner there was called the brickyard, and I'm still not sure why it was called the brickyard, but however, loose bricks were easy to find. They were scattered the street. And so it, it, this clubhouse had a brick floor, and again, two levels, um, and it leaned against that um, cemetery wall. It's the perfect street to have grown up on because nobody's driving through it. There's, no, exactly. you know, it dead ends into this, you know, right. wall right. to the cemetery. I mean, it's about maybe, what, 75 yards from Lena Street. Right. I mean, you have this enclave, yeah. you know, yeah. it was, you could... I mean, you're a stone's throw yeah. from Germantown Avenue, yeah. and yet it's a little village. Yeah, and, it, it was that. And I can see how the imagination could develop in this space that's so much dominated by this fantastical church that has a scale much larger than the human scale of the block. And so you're in this drama that I could see how an artist would grow from this place. Well, you, you, you know, I think that art is created out of this full range of experiences 
as well as the lack of experiences. In other words, you create your own. You use your imagination to explore or, or to see the world. And so we took, you know, whether we saw it on television or whether we experienced it in the movies, fly fishing or uh, archery, we brought it home to Earlland Street and then we had to find a way to create that space for ourselves. And I would say something else. There's a musician, Donald Bailey, he's a drummer. He played with Jimmy Smith. And the Bailey family turned out, he had a number of musicians, but Donald was the one uh, that captured our imagination. And what I remember as a kid growing up was the Baileys always had to practice. And <clears throat> you can see the small street, if the weather was um, warm enough, the windows would have been open. And the doors usually were open. By the way, no one locked any door here. But I remember, and this is the first time I had a sense that there was a bigger world out there for me. At a certain age, Donald Bailey was not at home any longer. Uh, he went away, and that's all we knew. And But he came back, and he had a record in his hand. And I said, God, you mean you could make something? And that making that something could affect other people and enlarge the world? Um, there were two people who were instrumental in me beginning to see and understand that there could be a bigger world. One was Donald Bailey, who became a musician, and Jimmy Smith was very popular, so everybody knew him uh, and knew about the band. The other was my uncle was a uh, cross-country truck driver, and he would come to visit, and he would park the cab at the end of the street here, and he, you could always find him, you know, shining it. And he saw the world. And those two people really uh, sparked an imagination that there were possibilities uh, outside of, you know, Earlham Street. And I think those two were instrumental in, in again, igniting a, a spark of imagination in me and, and a belief that and an understanding that there was a bigger world. Earlham Street, this is a small street, but you can see, right, your whole world was here. It was all here. And we didn't actually feel deprived in any way. It wasn't um, really a dead end street for Jerry at all. No, it was and, the beginning and, of everything. And, 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 and. My father was one of the first to own a car. So we, in a sense, saw ourselves as somewhat privileged. We had three bedrooms on this side of Earlham Street. And on the, uh, that side, on, you know, to our left, was just two bedrooms. So we had the bigger houses. Huh. So in a sense, we, in the pecking order, we were a little bit more privileged in, in a sense. Jerry, what was the path that brought you from Earlham Street to the Philadelphia College of Art? It's changed its name sure, a number sure. of now times. Now it's the University of now the Uni When I went there, it's the Philadelphia Museum School of Art. Got it. Uh, when I went there, and I knew and understood that there was a certain skill or gift that I had that maybe other young boys and my brothers might have had but didn't you know follow through i'm dyslexic so it gave me a, a kind of a safe place to be in the idea of drawing you know that was the equalizer in in the balance in my self-esteem i mean i love drawing and and again i think it, at one point it was filled a certain need and necessity to be whole i could do something others couldn't do and it's interesting that john Liney, who was the cartoonist of Henry at the time was again very important to my life because he was my first introduction to making art 
to be printed, you know, to be reproduced. Now, I didn't want to be a cartoonist, but I did know that certainly John Liney pointed the way in an understanding that one could take something that he and he loved what he was doing and and perhaps make a living. Now, how seriously I took that, I'm not quite sure. In the choice of Dobbins Vocational School, and I chose commercial art, it had a lot to do with my ability to draw and, and to make images, but it also gave me a way of dodging uh, high schools that would have perhaps been more loaded into the liberal arts. So I knew that the time that I could survive, not knowing, by the way, about dyslexia, but knowing the difficulties and the struggles I was having in certain areas, I didn't see how I could really survive in a regular liberal arts high school. So I chose Dobbins Vocational School and studied commercial art. Um, and then the Dobbins, the Board of Education at that time, offered three scholarships to high school students to art schools. And I'm not sure whether it was just for the Philadelphia Museum School or whether there were other art schools. But anyway, there were three scholarships offered my teacher at the time, the art teacher, only handed out you know, applications to the white students. And he was extremely fair, and I liked him. His attitude was that he felt he was being more helpful to say to black students, and by the way, I've met uh, art students you know, that were in classes ahead of me who talked about that was the turning point where they turned away from making art. Um, I always felt, you know, I, I say it, at times that I didn't really get it. I didn't understand what he, his message was. I actually loved it because he would give out A with wings. <laughs> and I had more A with wings, so I was one of his top students. I didn't quite understand what the message was. And so I went down to the, uh, the counselor's office or the advisor's office and got applications for myself and the other black students and gave them out. Um, that year, as I said, there were three scholarships, and two of the scholarships went to Dobbins, one to myself, and one to my friend Warren, who is also of color. Mm -hmm. Wow, good for Very you. So yeah. you. You initiated that. Yes, yeah, but I, you know, didn't come out in any that sense is. of courage or anything. It was a matter of just not understanding, getting a mixed message. And, and he was white, the teacher. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, and he was right. A teacher. He was a fabulous teacher. He just didn't think the black students would be able to see, have a future in the arts. When I was in school, never believed that I would ever become an artist. It was the time that I needed to spend in high school, and I could draw, so it was art school was, was the choice. You know, there must have been some consideration in going into graphic design with the hope and the possibility that there would be some sort of entry-level job. This is Germantown Shelton? Yeah, it's Shelton. So my, left on Shelton? Yeah. So we can stop on Shelton? My newsstand was on the right, this is the right side okay, here. Right. It's right here on this corner. And Matt, my boss, he was on that corner. There were two very large newsstands on those two corners and then smaller newsstands that only sold newspapers on this, this side. And on my way to Hill School, where I went to school, which is Rittenhouse Street, right above here, I would walk by this corner, and I noticed on this corner here, Rowell's was the department store that was here. I wanted to find out when that was integrated and whether it was segregated at the time I was selling newspapers. I don't know. Was it 13 that you had to be to get working papers, Gloria, to work? Yeah. 
and I then I lied, and I so I was twelve. <laughs> but more importantly than that, I would bring a sketchbook to work uh, with me. It was a slow corner. It wasn't as busy as the bigger newsstands because they had magazines as well as snacks. I just sold newspapers. So, you know, we would get busy usually if a bus or a trolley stopped and passengers got off. And so when it wasn't very busy, I would draw, Rowells would rotate their window displays. I would just do new drawings. And then I would draw people waiting for the bus and trolley. Now my uh, aunt, Edna, who recently passed, she tells the story that I would oftentimes uh, give the drawings away to people. So there was a saying that she says that buy a newspaper from Jerry, you must, just might get a drawing. Now, there are two mentors, I think, there, and that is Matt. First of all, can you imagine so hiring, had to, had to, he was my boss, having hired young Jerry to sell newspaper looking over and young Jerry is on the ledge of the stand and he's drawing and Matt never said a word and I, I now say that he was my one of my first mentors because in a sense not saying anything was encouragement and I got to meet his son and his son talks about his father talking about me uh, in, in the drawing and then that was the opportunity um, when I met John Liney, the cartoons of Henry, he would buy a paper from me um, and one day he took note of me drawing and I shared my sketchbook with him and he in turn invited me up to his studio which is right up uh, half the block up on uh, Shelton Avenue. Now in those days where you bought your art supplies was uh, a paint store. So we're Sherwin-Williams and the McDonald's. Right, right there. So when my father bought paint, that's where he would purchase his paint. So it's always been a paint store, yeah. Yeah, it's always been a paint store. And then what I remembered growing up is in order to get to the back of the paint store where they mixed paints, you would have to pass through sections where it sold art supplies. So I always say that my first introduction to art was through the materials that made art, not through a museum or a gallery. So you can draw this line between meeting John Liney, my father being, you know, a house painter, where he bought his paints, also sold art material. So eventually, when I was earning my own money, I could buy my own sketchbook. And I remember my first purchase was of a little oil kit, oils. And my first really kind of painting was an oil painting, and I used a... Um, calendars. Every house had a calendar that religious images and it was Jesus at the Rock it was my first like attempt at staging um, and doing a, a painting that had an environment and I do remember that. So you can draw lines between all of this and you know even the idea about Philadelphia and illustration and print the idea that I would have John Liney introduced into my life and then his syndicated cartoons were actually published in the paper I was selling. The idea was Gloria and I to get married. She was working. Were you working in a law firm then or were you working as secretary for the insurance company? I was working with the insurance company in North America. And so Gloria's pregnant. I drop out of school. And I dropped out of school, interesting enough, because I didn't think I was, it was going to go anywhere. I mean, I didn't have role models, and I don't know how, where this came from. I knew I kind of wanted to make images that said something 
or maybe it was a sense that I was still leaning on the fact that it was a comfortable place and safe place for me to be. I worked at Alfred's, the floral shop, the Alfred of the Sheridan that was in downtown uh, Market, right off of Market Street. Incredible arrangement. Um, and I remember I, I, I took the job to, um, as a truck, I would deliver flowers. And I remember, and I still, I don't know why I got rid of those books. I remember going to the library and getting books on oriental floral design. And eventually I moved into the shop and I was designing arrangements. And I learned, you know, through Alfred, but I learned it through looking at and seeing value in floral arranging. And then, uh, this is the, uh, in a story, but this is Sam Mayton, which you have in the museum. Oh, Sam was on the board at Woodman. Oh, so Sam, I never had him as an instructor or teacher, but he was well known to everyone, all the students, as someone who advocated for students. And when I left school, there are two things that happened. When I left school, I went to see Sam and showed them what I was doing at the time. A year later, Sam calls me and says, I have a friend of mine, Tom Broman, he's an illustrator, and he's starting a new division at Rustcraft Greeting Card Company in Dedham, Massachusetts, and they're looking for to fill that department. Would you be interested in going up and interviewing? And I said, Sure. I mean, again, this was desire to see the bigger world. I didn't, I mean, I had, there was no hesitancy. I didn't have a portfolio. So I remember we, Gloria and I had shared a small apartment with Troy in West Philadelphia. And I remember sitting on a toilet seat and putting a drawing board over the tub, over <laughs> the lid down, and developing a portfolio, which I took to Dedham, Mass., and I did get the position. I want to go back because we talked about Sam Mayton. We haven't talked about Sam Brown. I had him, I, I think, probably my junior and sophomore year at Dobbins. I liked him as a teacher. He was African-American, and that was important to me. And then he, too, became a mentor because he, he at the time, ran a sign painting shop. And I would work there in the summer. And what I remember more than anything as and talk about being a generous man was that here he he hires a dyslexic young man to work in a sign sign printing shop and and I remember oftentimes misspelling a word and Sam just would have me return and and fix it and that's a remarkable thing in itself and, and I grew, I grew to, to really like him a lot, but I never knew he was a watercolorist. And I never understood that part of his art-making life. I didn't know, and he didn't share it. And I suspect the possibility was that he always had to have two jobs in order to make ends meet. Without uh, that move to Boston that put me into another whole culture. That was when I found myself among black artists and really understood that art could serve a sort of social purpose because there was Richard Yard and John Wilson and Dana Chandler and it was interesting because at that time I was the only one who was pretty much working commercially. They taught and then they did their own independent work but for me I was always, my design was always one, to make images. I loved the idea. Printmaking became important. And I loved the idea of multiple editions of things. So seeing things printed was kind of always in my blood. 
So, but these guys were doing something different, but I did fall into that circle. So what was the leap into just the broader illustration work, I guess, after, as Gloria was saying, after Rustcraft? I mean, how did you serve that break, breakthrough? Yeah, it was meeting with Ben Black, who uh, was a freelancer for Rustcraft Greeting Card Company. I've always had individuals in my life that sort of were there to make that next step easier for me. And he hired me, um, Ben Black and Mike Barker, who was, Ben was a very decorative artist and designer. Mike Barker was a more realistic illustrator. And they opened a studio. And Ben Black, who I met through Rustcraft, invited me to work there. You know, I majored in graphic design. I had a love of the narrative art, and they were doing both there. So uh, it was a, a very neat fit for me. You know, that was where I started to meet other art directors, and then my world, in terms of how I would survive as an image maker, grew by leaps and bounds. My first book, um, The Adventures of Spider by Joyce Arkers, came in as a uh, project for the studio, and what they did was they were very smart. They sort of shopped my portfolio around. They got the contract to do The Adventures of Spider, which was probably close to my first year's pay. So if you look at the copyright, it says copyright Barker Black Studios. But that was my introduction to the picture book format. Here we are back in front of Woodmere. You know, we just did a tour of where you grew up and we heard about the influences. And you're going to have this exhibition. What do you hope for visitors coming through your exhibition? What do you hope that they come away with? Well, in this particular um, exhibition, I, I, the takeaway that I hope will happen is that they get a fuller, clearer understanding of the African American in terms of the American experience. The thing that I want to also speak to is the strength and the resilience of African Americans. And perhaps I want them to re-examine why we find ourselves in this kind of place today with incarceration rates among African Americans and people of color so high. And that in fact that you can still see policemen uh, on the news shooting a, a black male. And I think that perspective has a lot to do with the void in understanding the black contribution. Special thanks to Jerry and Gloria Pinckney for being so gracious with their time and to take this tour with us. It truly gave us such new insight into who Jerry Pinckney is and the influences that have shaped his extraordinary vision as an artist. And don't forget to check out our other related podcast episodes. There's the conversation between Jerry Pingney and Crystal Lucky, a professor of African-American literature at Villanova. They talk about how to help children understand slavery and what Jerry calls the Ark of Promise to overcome this hard history and painful history. We also released an episode with Warren Ori and Suzanne Burgess talking about the importance of Jerry Pinckney's illustrations for The Old African and Minty, the story of young Harriet Tubman, and how they see their dramatic readings of these books paired with music can be a platform for broader conversations about slavery and freedom. 
We've made their performances of the Old African and Minty available in podcast form so you can hear these stories set to music in their entirety. We, of course, hope you'll come see Jerry Pinckney's masterful artwork in person here at Woodmere and join us for a series of live events. For more information about our Freedom's Journal exhibition, go online to woodmereartmuseum.org and follow us on social media at Woodmere Art. Thanks for joining us.